One of the unique blessings that you get as a, a pastor is the opportunity to bless new believers, to, to baptize them, but also to sit and listen to their testimony about how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I still remember one of the first guys I baptized uh, tells the story about how he had a, a friend who began to go through the scriptures with him and share with him about Jesus Christ. Now, at the time, he, he wasn't living in a way that honored God. Uh, he was living with his, his girlfriend. Uh, they weren't married, weren't, were uh, planning on it someday, but that wasn't really like top on the radar. The other thing uh, that he noted was he was working at a place where they had this honor system. And uh, every day uh, they made fresh soup and they'd put it out and they'd leave a, a can that was really just there for people to, to pay for the soup, to help contribute. And it was completely an honor system kind of deal. And he tells a story about how it was really kind of a dishonor system because nobody ever actually paid. He didn't pay. He didn't feel guilty about it. But he remembers that as he began to have Bible studies and come to know Jesus Christ, there came a distinct day that stuck out in his memory where he came to that can. He got his soup. He looked at it. And for the first time, he began to feel guilty about not leaving money. And as he, he went back to Bible study that, that next week, he started telling his friend about like, like, what are you doing, man? Like all of a sudden, I'm feeling guilty about stuff I never felt guilty about before. And he said, now I'm starting to really feel like I'm not supposed to be living with my girlfriend because, you know, what Jesus says about relationships between men and women. And uh, it just seems like you're making life better, harder, not better. So what's going on? He says, brother, I, I think what's going on is you're becoming a Christian. And with your faith in Christ, you are beginning to have a new sense of right and wrong and morality and obedience. And there's something about goodness that is beautiful to you in such a way that it makes sin seem ugly and wrong. And, and, and that story right there that, that stuck out in his mind is central to his conversion experience, I believe is really the theological sinkhole that we're about to jump into with Second Peter this morning as we look at those verses that we just read, verses 3 and 4 from chapter 1 of Second Peter. We're back in our Remember This series, True Knowledge, where we are going to see that Jesus promises to make his people like God. It's kind of an amazing thing if you, if you think about it. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing this morning is thinking about this reality. If you're just joining us, let me just catch you up to speed. Uh, Peter, one of the apostles, wrote Second Peter. He is a special messenger whom the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ sent to speak with his authority. He speaks, thus saith the Lord, in, in a way that others do not. He, he does this along with other apostles like Paul and James. He is not equal with Christ. He communicates himself as a slave of Christ in the very first verse of this letter. And Jesus told Peter that he would follow him into death at the end of the Gospel of John. And Peter tells us in this very letter that he anticipates that this death that Jesus promised is drawing near. He tells us that in verse 114, which likely means that this letter was written over 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just before Nero would likely take Peter and Paul's lives. See, this is an older Peter. He is sobered by the nearness of his death for Christ. And do you see what's on his mind? His death is drawing near this, this dear old saint. Who is it that he's thinking about? Is he thinking about himself? Well, no, he's, he's actually thinking about other Christians that he loves. He's 
concerned about them. He wants to make sure that as he goes that that these Christians are ready for what's coming. He wants to make sure that they make it to the end, that they make it all the way to Christ. So you'll remember that he doesn't introduce his letter geographically like he does in that first letter, 1 Peter. He addresses it to those theologically who have obtained a faith of equal standing with him in Christ. And given that he calls this his second letter, it's likely immediately for those churches in these Roman provinces of Asia Minor that are today modern Turkey. And he's concerned about false teachers and prophets who are going to be coming, speaking, thus saith the Lord, but who are are telling them things that are not true, that are not really revelations from God, that they're man's opinions. So he's warning them that there are some who are going to come and they're going to tell them, you know, Jesus, it's been a while since he's gone and he said he's coming back, but he hasn't coming back. So I don't, I don't know if he's coming back. And since he's not coming back, it doesn't matter how you live morally. You don't need to look different than this corrupt world. And he's warning them that this is not true. See, Peter repetitively through this letter asserts that he hopes to stir them up by way of reminder the true knowledge that will combat the fake news that's coming their way. See, he says, don't forget that Jesus is God. Jesus is coming back. And how you live until then, it matters. Now, the English doesn't show it in this verse 3 as you look there. But in the original, it it actually begins with a, a host or an as, which could connect it to that intro that we just read or what follows. I, I take verse 3 actually to be preparing us for a section that goes from 3 to 11. It's really just one complete thought. We're going to move step by step through this over the next few weeks, though, because it is so theologically robust, we want to untangle it to make sure we understand it. So this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 4, and this is our big idea. If you're taking notes, a great thing to write down is this. Jesus empowers Jesus' likeness. Jesus empowers Jesus' likeness. As we begin, let me go ahead and pray for us. Let's pray together, asking for God's help. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are needy. We are needy to hear from your word. Father, we need for your Holy Spirit to use your word in our lives to transform us more into the image of Jesus so that we might look more like you. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that very thing this morning, Lord. We ask that your word would shape and change us to make us to look like your son. In your name we do pray. Amen. Well, notice first that Jesus has granted all Christians all things for life and godliness. Jesus has granted all Christians all things for life and godliness. Now, verse 3, it opens with this pronoun, his. Now, that could speak of God the Father. Or Jesus. And I think there's a good argument for each. But I take it here to speak of Jesus because the the nearest antecedent is back in verse 2. And if you'll scroll down to verse 16, you'll notice that the power that is spoken of here, there's a power spoken of there, and it speaks of Jesus at his second coming. So Jesus uh, is usually, if you're new to Trinity, a safe answer to most questions, right? Now sometimes it gets weird, you got to listen close. But usually it's like, you know, what is this? 
Jesus. You can't usually go wrong with that, and that's what we're going with this morning. But either way, this speaks of divine power, God's power. Notice what the phrase tells us. At first, it tells us that Jesus has granted all Christians all things for life and godliness. We see that in the first half of this verse. Peter says, if you look with me, his or Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, if you're new to Christianity, this might sound strange to you. It speaks of Jesus' divine power. Maybe you thought of him as kind of like a a prophet, like Muhammad, or or guru, like Gandhi. And yet here, there's an ascribing of divine God power to this human Jesus. But the Bible reveals Jesus as very unique from any other human that has ever lived. It describes him as fully God and fully man. In fact, he is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, from eternity past. God the Son was always and fully God, but he was not always man. That that is only true of, of Jesus. We are not immortal souls who took on flesh. That is Christ alone. See, the eternal Son of God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Now, what's fascinating here is that we find that Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, maybe when you read that, you feel like you need to pick it up, kind of like a, a wrapped present at Christmas or your birthday or maybe Valentine's Day. And, and have you ever picked it up and just kind of had to rattle it around to figure out what exactly is in that? What, what exactly is in this idea of life and godliness that's been handed to me? It, it might not be readily apparent when you just read that phrase. Well, some take it as speaking of this physical life when it speaks of life and godliness. See, God created us. He sustains us. Every breath that you have actually is a gift of the Lord. And so some look at that and say, well, this is speaking of the physical requirements for life that are given to us by God. And that's true. But I believe it's evident in this text that clearly Peter has eternal life in mind. Eternal life might sound, that might sound like something that is entirely futuristic, a future reality, something you're waiting for. But New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, he explains it this way. He says, eternal life, of eternal life, believers have eternal life even now, and yet await the day when such life will be consummated at the eschaton. We have eternal life, and we are awaiting a greater experience of eternal life that is to come when Jesus returns. That's the last day of Jesus' second coming. The day the false teachers and prophets that Peter has warned of are denying. Now you remember in 1 John 5, 11 that John says, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. So this life that we experience, this eternal life that comes through faith union with Jesus Christ, the person. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are delivered from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We have life forever with Him. There's an already not yet consummation that we look to that is full of hope with the eternal life that we have been invited to in Christ. 
There is an already and not yet consummation of it that we are waiting for. But Jesus has given us everything here for this new eternal life. But he doesn't stop there. He says, in godliness. Now, godliness literally means good worship. And it's mentioned later in this letter in verses 6, 7, and then down in chapter 3, verse 11. This good worship that we owe God. Uh, another commentator, Richard Bauckham, speaking of this word, says it demotes piety towards the gods. But also, especially in Jewish and Christian usage, the respect for God's will and the moral way of life, which are inseparable from the proper religious attitude to God. See, godliness, it means putting the will of God above your own will. It's trusting God's holy will above your sinful desires. If you really understand the nature of faith, what you are doing in faith is actually trusting that God has a will for your life that is better than your own will, your own wants. God wants better for you than you want for yourself. He wants a future and a hope for a fallen creature. But here, we find that what he wants for us is a moral life. What he reflects is a moral life in us, a good life. Now think about this, godliness. This, this thing, this moral life, and, and this eternal life. Do you see what he says about these? These are a gift. All these things that pertain to eternal life and what it means to live a moral life. All those things, all that you need, those things have been given to you as a gift. That sounds like a pretty good gift. I, I would like more of that if I don't have it. All things and everything I need for eternal life and a new way of life, man, I'll take two scoops of that. But, but as you, you read this, I, I believe it should be hugely encouraging. But catch this. I find often that this reality can immobilize us if we're not understanding it rightly. And maybe it convicts us if we do. Now, maybe you are asking yourself as you read this first part of the verse, if you have all things this morning for a number of reasons. I mean, do I have all things for eternal life and a godly way of life until Jesus gets back? Because I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at eternal life and they're put together. And do, do I have all the things Maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, uh, I don't feel like I have all things. In fact, you feel like you have less things than other Christians who seem to live effortless, faithful lives without ever sinning or stumbling or failing morally, which, by the, by the way, is not a thing. There's no Christian who lives for Christ until Jesus gets back that does not stumble, that does not sin, that does not struggle morally. Or maybe you feel not like you've received less things, but you have just received just enough things, like conviction of sin, to make you feel guilty and filthy for your life, but not enough things to help you do what God commands and, and, do what, and not do what he prohibits. You feel powerless. You know, have you ever felt like fighting sin is like fighting a, a flame-throwing dragon with a toothpick made of wood? We, we all laugh because we know that feeling, like, like he who is outside of us is greater than he who is inside of us. And you wonder if you're made of the same stuff and you've gotten the same things. Or maybe you have a sensitive conscience before the Lord and you not only feel like 
Jesus didn't give you all things or enough things for eternal life and godliness. You feel like he didn't give you any things. Like, do I have any of the things? I feel, I feel like I have no hope and hopeless. And Peter's words would have surely corrected false teachers and prophets claiming spiritual life without godliness. Uh, Peter says up front, clearly, they go together. But Peter's also giving these Christians encouragement, a life-giving reminder that Jesus grants all things for life and godliness to all Christians. Now, who's this true for, and when did they receive all things? Maybe you're thinking that this is just true of this local church that he spoke to who must have been a band of super-Christians. Or maybe you're thinking that it's speaking of apostles or those who have had a subsequent kind of baptism of the Spirit or those who have received some kind of mystical special revelation and knowledge from God that you have not gotten. But remember that verse 1 tells us that Peter is speaking to every Christian who has received a faith of equal standing. He says this is true of all of us in Christ And maybe in this moment you're thinking, well, that's great. Okay, this is a gift that's for us. But when does it come? Is this just an entirely future event? Notice here again, the language is important. Now, for those of you who, again, are are Greek nerds, uh, there is a perfect passive tense for the verb has granted. Now, don't worry about that. Just come in close what this means. What this means, according to Michael Heiser, is the perfect tense is communicating this has granted a completed verbal action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being, a result that is in the present, with the emphasis not so much in that past action, but as the present state of affairs resulting from that past action. This is what the focus is. It is a present reality for you. It is something that exists right now. You have all the things. It's not just that they're in the future, it's that they're here and now. But here's the good news. Peter says, the present state of affairs is that Jesus has granted you all things for life and godliness. This is true of every Christian. Did you hear that? Every Christian's access to these things. Now, the rest of this verse tells us of the past event that created this present state of affairs. It is our conversion. So notice, second, Jesus granted all things to every Christian at conversion. Now, as we said last week, knowledge can speak of knowing facts about something or someone, or it can speak of a relational knowing. Now, as Doug Moo says here, this knowledge in verse 3 refers to an intimate, informed relationship that is the product of conversion to the gospel. But do you see it? Conversion, it is literally a, a turning from living from this world that is corrupt and passing away to living for Jesus Christ as king in such a way that you are putting his will above your own. You're submitting yourself to him, trusting that he knows what's best for you. Now here Peter says those with saving knowledge of Jesus were called by Jesus himself to Jesus himself. Do, Do you see that? Jesus, through the gospel, is calling people to himself and conversion. Now, this is clearly a spiritual reality that is given. It is something that was written decades after the life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. This isn't thinking of speaking clearly of Jesus in the person, in his humanity, 
amongst those who lived in the same time of Jesus being called by Jesus, but a spiritual calling of Christ that is coming after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. See, the Bible speaks of the calling throughout the scriptures in in a couple of different ways. And it's important to think about how calling is being used here. First, you have Jesus, in some places, speaking of a general call. Like if you're reading through Matthew 22, 14. Everybody knows the verse, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. See, this call is heard externally. It's heard externally by, by the ears of many, but it does not take root internally in all. It just happens for a few. And, and in that verse, Jesus says, it's the chosen or elect that, that have that word implanted. Sometimes that call is general. And here we see God's election or choosing receives priority. But Peter speaks in this verse of a second effectual calling that effectively impacts all true believers internally in the heart. See, these are those Paul speaks of in Romans 8, 28, where he says, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. All things, those who are called according to his purpose. See, there Paul is explaining that those who are, he goes on to say, foreknown, are also predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Now, a popular dictionary of Greek words, I like to use dictionaries when I'm confused about the meaning of a word. And BDAG is one of these dictionaries. It it describes and explains calling this way. In this way, it's used to mean to choose for receipt of a special benefit or experience a call. So this calling is... I'm calling you not just vaguely, but specifically to something. And of course, here we find that they've been called to receive all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, usually the New Testament pictures God the Father is calling us to Jesus. But here Jesus calls us not just to salvation from future wrath, but specifically to his own glory and excellence. See, Jesus' glory here is not just his fame as it is in some places but the splendor and majesty of his divine being. There is an unparalleled dignity and value and worth in Christ in that he is the eternal son of God. And that is what's being heralded here in this verse. But notice that he also speaks of his excellence. And this word for excellence comes from a Greek word that highlights moral virtue. And so it's specifically highlighting the moral beauty and excellence of Jesus Christ, his divine moral excellence, the beauty of Jesus' goodness. I mean, we could think about all kinds of glories that are wrapped up in Christ, but Peter here is focusing in. He says, I want you to note and take note of the moral excellence of Jesus. There is none like him. There is none better than him. He is good in all of his ways. Now, just to put a bow on it, Peter describes becoming a Christian as Jesus calling and enabling you to come to himself in all of his gloriously divine moral excellence and gifting you in turn with everything that you need for eternal life and a moral life. Is that clear? You see it? To Christian brothers and sisters, you might feel like you don't have the same things as other Christians. You might feel like you have just enough things to feel guilty this morning or not enough things to live a godly life 
Or maybe even feel like you don't have any things for eternal life and a moral life right now. But Jesus says, hear me, I have given you, Christian, everything that you need, all the things that you need to look more like Jesus. He has given you, don't miss this, himself. Do you you see it? You have been called not just to a set of truths. You have been called at least to that. But to the truth itself, Jesus Christ. You have not just been called to a way of life, but to the one who is the way of life. You have been called to the one who came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. But if you come through me, you do get to the Father. This is good stuff. Second, Christians partake of the divine nature in part today and fully on the last day. It's verse 4. Now there's an already not yet reality, I believe, nestled here in verse 4. Now look there again at what it says. It says this. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, here again, the, the language of Second Peter is complicated. But the Greek, it actually begins in verse 4 with, through these. Through these he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, which I, I think is pointing back likely to his glory and excellence, or glory and goodness. In other words, I, I think Peter is saying that when someone comes to know Jesus and to put their faith in him, Jesus also grants his precious and very great promises to them. Did you know that? When you, when you come to Christ, and when we're inviting you, if you're a non-Christian, to come to Christ, we're not asking you to come to Christ because of what we want from you, because we need somebody else to greet, or because we need somebody else to give. We're inviting you to Christ for what we want for you. We want for you to know the glorious Christ, and to be a partaker of all of the precious and great promises that he has for his people. You might be thinking to yourself, Christian, what are those precious and great promises that we have been called to? What promises does Peter have in mind? I mean, there's so many, right? As you look through the New Testament. If you look through the New Testament, you, you see so many precious and very great promises. Like forgiveness of sins. You really can have forgiveness of your sins. You can be made whole in Christ. Uh, What about peace with God? Being justified, no longer guilty, but innocent before the great judge. Adoption, you become a child of God. The promise that nothing seen or unseen can separate you from the love of God. A great inheritance that uh, awaits you and yet is already yours. The promise that he who began a good work in you, that he will carry it off and bring it to completion. That these Bodies that we have that are corruptible and passing away will die, but that we will receive new incorruptible bodies that will not die in the new heavens and a new earth. That we will see Jesus face to face, that we will reign with him, that he will wipe away every tear and that we will dwell with him forever. That's just some. But what is it specifically that he's speaking of here? I think he at least has what he mentions in the very next part, in mind, partakers of the divine nature. You see, this is ground zero for the doctrine of deification 
or divination or theosis, words you probably don't hear a lot, not popular words in theology, but they speak of the way in which we become like God, and and some people go in some strange directions with these. I think he likely at least here is he speaking about the divine nature, has in mind those virtues that we'll talk about next week in verses 5 to 7, highlighting the moral excellence and God-likeness that we are called to. But listen close. I want to make sure we don't make at least one mistake. When we are partakers of the divine nature, when this is given to us, this doesn't mean that we become the essence of God, that we receive God's Godhood. This is not saying that we in some way have a new ontological reality. Okay, you can check back in. Just like the fact that your, your nature has changed to God's status. So here what we find is the divine nature is something that is, is much different. It is speaking of God-likeness. And we need, need to just be clear about this. We do not have the essence of God like the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. He will forever be distinct from us even though we are united to Him. We don't lose the nature and the beauty and the majesty, the uniqueness of Christ. He changes us. Now, Mormons teach that if you live a really moral moral life, you graduate to actual godhood status. That's heresy. So the divine nature here is really, for them, kind of like, in their theology, a carrot on a stick. And, And what they're saying is, is that those who work hardest will get the carrot, but there's not enough carrots for everybody, right? And it's only through your effort. If you really strive and beat everyone else, if you're doing it really hard, if you work really hard, you can get it. You can get godhood status. That's not what is being communicated here. See, here what we find is the call to be partakers of the divine nature connects, I believe, with a larger storyline in the Bible, beginning with the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. Here we, we find the description of the creation of man. And he was created in the Imago Dei, or the the image of God. We were created to display God's glory uniquely in all of his creation. In a way that is distinct from everything else. In fact, in Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now, some recent archaeological discoveries, uh, we found some Egyptian tablets that actually are from about the time of Moses who wrote this. And it actually helped us sort of understand that it's likely that image and likeness mean two different things. Related, but but two different things. They're not just saying the same thing like in a different way, right? God's image, his likeness, same thing, just being creative. That's not what's happening. It seems instead they're talking about two different kinds of relationships that uh, a king would have with a great God. So the likeness speaks of the worship relationship that a king owed to the God that he served. An image spoke of the relationship he had with others and the way that he would image his God to creation and those outside of himself. So that God literally in the first pages of the Bible, when he says, I created man in my image and after my likeness, it is speaking of the fact that he made you for upward relationship with himself and outward relationship with others. And your creation purpose is that you might truly display the character of God to others, not to make a lie about it, not to live in a way that does not display the truth about who God is. That's exactly the thing that we were created for. Here's the problem. Genesis 3 happened. 
And in Genesis 3, man sinned against God. Adam sinned against God. And when he sinned, all of humanity fell. Such that we all, every human born after him was born a sinner by nature and by choice. If you speed up to Genesis 6, you see what that means. We are told there that when the Lord looks down, what he sees in Genesis 6, 5 is that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And catch this. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All people, all their thoughts. See, God's image still exists in every human. But after the fall, it is marred by sin. That's why when you look at creation and you look at the news and you look at your neighborhood and you even look in your own home and the way that people mistreat one another, even the best of us, you're thinking to yourself, I know that God created all things good, but all things are not good. So what happened? Sin happened. See, every human is born a sinner by nature and by choice and part of a corrupt world. A corrupt world, that means that it's passing away. It's perishing. It is destined for death and the wrath of God. That's what this world is. That's what all of us were born into. And the reason that it's corrupt is because of the sinful desires the intentions of the hearts of a broken, fallen humanity. But don't miss this. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of a fallen world, and you are enslaved to sin or disobedience of God if you have not trusted in Christ. You are still part of a fallen world and enslaved to sin or disobedience against God. Here's here's the, the hard news. The Bible tells us you must live a morally excellent life, a perfect one, to meet God's standards. And then it follows up with, but because of Adam's sin, you can't do it by yourself. You can't make yourself godlike apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter wants us to see. You need grace straight from Jesus, moment by moment, day by day, to help you be what God made you to be. When you become a Christian, you change your mailing address and your zip code. You're no longer living in the zip code of destruction and corruption and death and damnation and God's wrath. You're living in the household of God. You are living united with Christ, with a future and a hope, with eternal life and a promise that you will be transformed so that you look like the morally excellent Christ. See, Jesus' life and this world is corruption and death. Obedience to the will of God, it displays God-likeness and immorality. It's not bad to be God-like. It's not bad to be good. While living for sinful desire in this world, It shows that it is full of death and a place that is passing away. It's so much less than what God has created you for. So when you put your faith in Christ, eternal life is your present and your future. You have true knowledge of God and fellowship with Christ in such a way that you begin to look like the morally excellent Christ. You start to question whether or not you should be stealing soup anymore, right? Things change. And if you haven't put your faith in Christ, let me just say this this morning. In Christ, 
you can have the moral excellency of Christ by faith. See, here's what God wants for you. He wants to make you look like Jesus. He wants you to have a future and a hope. And if that's not you, don't leave without talking to me about how you can become united with Christ today. But Christian, I, I think this partaking of the divine nature, I think it speaks both to an already and not yet reality. See, the Spirit of Christ is already at work in every believer, transforming them, shaping them more and more, fashioning them in the image of Jesus, which we call progressive sanctification. But Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is what he says. He says, he is already at work in you. This is the already work of partaking in the divine nature. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is already restoring the image of God in us, making us look like Christ, who looks like the Father. Albeit, it's, at least from my experience, slower than I want. Slower than my wife Gia wants. Slower than many of you want. It is also stumbling and bumbling more than I wish. Making the same mistakes again. Sinning in ways that I thought that I had mastered that come again. And yet, progressively, God is changing and transforming and shaping me so that I will look more like Jesus. And he's doing that in your life. In fact, if you look at the phrase, the last phrase in verse 4, it speaks of that already not yet reality of salvation when it mentions that we have been saved from the corruption of this world and the enslavement to sinful desires. Yet, yet it requires effort and work that we'll read about next week in verses 5 to 7 to image God, communicating that we are still at war with sinful desires, even in Christ. Yet, we have the promise of the Spirit that Christ is already transforming us. These are all realities that are true. You might think, I, I know this war. This is my daily life. Thanks for reminding me. And if that's overwhelming you to this morning, let me remind you of the not yet of what's coming. There's a not yet that's coming. These, these strivings will cease. That is the not yet of experiencing the nature, the divine nature that has been promised us. See, Christian, one day you will be just like Jesus. Now, you won't be God, but you will be like God. You will be like Christ. Now, next week, again, we're going to talk about effort. But I think that Peter here particularly is focusing in on the nature of our relationship to Christ is a priority that precedes the efforts that we give towards obeying Jesus and looking like him. See, our sanctification, our transformation, and looking more and more like Jesus, it comes from union with Christ. And the new covenant promises that he sealed for us in his blood and which he has sealed in us with his spirit. This is something that, that we believe even evangelicals believe. Now, Greek Orthodox, their church teaches a little bit something different on theosis. And it's really grounded in verses like these. This is kind of ground zero for them in that teaching. And they believe that really what, what life is and what spirituality is, is chasing after the image of God. And they don't highlight justification 
by faith alone is the positional ground for progressive salvation. But instead, they they put you on a journey whereby through works and actions, you're trying to achieve a kind of state of theosis. And and guess what? Nobody really achieves it in this life, so that's why we have to pray for the dead, so we hopefully can kind of help them get in. But that doesn't seem to be what Peter's saying. Notice he says we have already been saved from a corrupt world. It's an already reality. And here in the not yet, we are already partaking in the divine nature of Jesus Christ. See, our faith union with the person of Jesus is the ground of our hope for transformation. Like, let me just say that again. The ground of your hope for transformation is your union with Jesus Christ, which means you need the mediator, Jesus Christ, if you're going to see any change in your life. It can't be done through just picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not something you just kind of grind out, which I think is what we all fall into. We jump to verses 5 to 7, and we forget the fact that it begins with the work that Jesus has done in us. It is something that is first granted to us, and then it's something that we grind out in grace-fueled effort. See, this invitation of the divine nature is not an invitation to pick yourself up and grind it out yourself, but to look to Christ for what only he can provide. Uh, Robert Murray McChain left us with this glorious invitation in Memoir and Remains of Robert Murray McChain. He said this, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners. Even the chief live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. We need to, to work at being obedient, but before we get there, we need to actually revel in the person of Jesus Christ. Love him, adore him, rest in him, know him. Imagine, imaging God means that we need to do a couple of things. We'll talk about this again throughout these verses, but it means that we need to vivify and mortify. Uh, Vivify means living unto God and obeying what God has commanded, like we see in verses 5 to 7. What's beautiful is we actually have a little girl in our congregation named Vivian. Gentles named their daughter Vivian because they, they wanted to name her after this beautiful doctrine of a vivification, living unto God. Hope that we have lots of Vivians, even if that's not officially their name in this congregation. See, the life of Christ enlivens us to a life of freedom from sin, and it leads us to mortify sin in our very lives. As John Owen says, do you mortify, do you make it your daily work to mortify sin? Be always at it while you live Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We need to be about the work of obeying God's word. We need to be about the work of killing sin in our lives. But here's another implication from this text that we find. Not only does looking like Jesus depend on Jesus, not only does imaging God mean vivifying and mortifying, saving grace does not mean that you don't need to obey Jesus. Saving grace doesn't mean that you need to be, don't need to obey Jesus. I'm sure you've heard this, this line from your friends. You know, we're all sinners and all. Like kind of a throwaway line, like, oh, I messed up. Like, we're all sinners and all. It's not a big deal. And yet, so underestimates a number of things. 
When you say, like, you know, we're all sinners and all, like, you're saying a number of things. You're saying, one, like, you, you underestimate the value and worth of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for that sin, the weight and the majesty of that. You, you underestimate the weight and the majesty of a holy God being willing to initiate forgiveness with sinners. It means also that you underestimate the goodness that God wants for you. There's a, an underlying way in which you're just saying, like, I just really don't trust God in this sin. That he doesn't really want better for me than what I want for myself. That he doesn't really know what's best for me. I know better than he knows. It's a sense in which you in that moment are trying to be like God, but God over God. So there's a real sense when we come to Jesus, we need to understand that saving grace does not mean that we don't need to obey Jesus. We understand that saving grace actually does something glorious in us. It helps us and enables us and empowers us and transforms us so that we can actually look like Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. In church, we want to make sure that we are people who have space for grace, for people who are coming from all kinds of backgrounds spiritually. And yet at the same time, intentionally putting sin to death. You know, I'm usually more patient with one-degree processes with myself than I am with others. Especially when that one degree of progress that you require requires another degree of patience on my part. But God is transforming each of us and all of us from one degree of glory to the next. We are not perfectionists like John Wesley taught. We don't believe that any of us has gotten so much like Jesus in theosis that we have arrived to another spiritual state absolutely free from sinful desire because God is at work. And he's at work until Jesus gets back. And Jesus is coming back and he will get back and he will bring about the completion of the work that he began in us. And that's the day that we long for. See, Christian, one day, you will be just like Jesus. I love what John says in 1 John 3, 2-3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will be, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We will see Jesus. We will be like Jesus. And here's the the main point from the New Testament. It is that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. He is the one who is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who is altogether glorious, and he is the one whom we want to look like. So brothers and sisters, we're going through these verses over the next couple of weeks. I know there's going to be some time when you're feeling, man, like these virtues, I feel like these are a list of things that I am not. And I want us to come back to the well of who we are in Christ and the divine nature that we've been called to and the resources that have been given to us. We've been given all things in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you praising you, praising you that you have given us your son. Father, praising you that Jesus has called us to himself, that he has given us all things for eternal life and a godly way of life. Father, we ask that our congregation would be a people who are known for for loving and basking in your moral excellence, and yet at the same time defined by a humility that knows that we are sinners, we are not perfect, we have grace towards other sinners, and yet we are also seeking to put sin to death. Lord, help us to do both of those things to the glory of your name we pray. Amen.